economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Wow, we got such a mouthful. Maybe we'll have to trim that down next time, but that's okay. That's fun. So I had the opportunity to testify before a special state Senate committee and they were wanting my input on economic recovery during this COVID crisis. So I went in and felt like this was an opportunity to talk to policymakers on some foundational principles as I snuck in concepts of COVID. I had done a policy brief that we'll have in the show notes. It's also available on the Gortney Institute website that was a survey of about 150 businesses that were members of the National Federation of Institute of Business. And they gave feedback back in May during shutdown time is when they were actually responding to the, to the survey on, you know, would they be able to keep their workplace safe? Would they be able to keep their employees safe? That sort of thing. And so that policy brief has some content there on business responses to COVID that I was sharing with the state Senate Special Economic Recovery Committee. And so, but I started off, I couldn't resist starting off with economic freedom to help frame some of our thinking about the COVID crisis and bringing things back into action and different government policies associated with it. So this is Jim Gortney's original definition for economic freedom. Individuals have economic freedom when property they acquire without the use of force, fraud, or theft is protected from physical invasions by others, and they are free to use, exchange, or give their property as long as their actions do not violate the identical rights of others. So kind of the rule of law, let people be what they're going to be and let people do what they're going to do as long as whatever they're doing isn't infringing on the identical rights of others. And that's the notion of economic freedom as opposed to other sorts of exchanges that might have constraints on them through government law regulation and whatnot. So the countries around the world are all ultimately given a number that boils down from 42 different variables from external sources that touch on five different areas uh, of economic freedom. And those are the size of government, the legal system and protection of property rights, so that would be police and courts and whatnot. Access to sound money is the Federal Reserve uh, running the printing press causing crazy inflation or not. Freedom to trade individually or uh, internationally. So are there tariffs in place? Is, is the president jacking up 25% tariffs for China or other things? Those are going to cause our number to fall, by the way. And then finally, the fifth area is regulation of capital, labor, and business. And so do we have a minimum wage? Is there overtime constraints? Do you have to have occupational license to braid hair? All of that sort of thing. So that data is collected from all over the world. And then ultimately, there was a state index created later on. And the areas that were focused on there was the state government spending, state taxation, 
and labor market freedom. Um, as you know, uh, if you run over to Seattle, uh, you might have the luck of getting paid $15 an hour for your low, no skill job. Or you might be in the unemployment grinds with the uh, other 30% of high school students who aren't able to find a job because the minimum wage is at $15. So state by state, we have these differences. And what's neat is that in Kansas, uh, we've been fairly free uh, the last five years. The most recent data for 2019 has Kansas ranked 10th out of our uh, all the states of the nation. So to, in order to achieve a high freedom ranking, the country must keep government spending and taxes low. So if the government has higher taxes, that's less money in your hands versus the government hands and other people's hands. So one way where that uh, economic freedom is being measured at the individual level is through the amount of spending and taxes. And then uh, sound money, we talked about with inflation, protection of property rights, and enforcing contracts even-handedly. Now this is an area where I think COVID has really impacted things because we have mom and pop on Main Street who were forced to shut down even though they are selling some of the same goods that Walmart is selling. So the government came in and blessed certain folks as essential and other folks as not essential. And uh, I think that was a, a break in the trust that we have in our system in the United States in terms of treating people fairly and evenly, uh, or at least businesses fairly and evenly. So then lastly, a country must refrain from imposing trade barriers and regulations, those types of regulations that undermine voluntary exchange. And so I think this is also where COVID policies undermined voluntary exchange by restrictions. Of course, stay in your house <laughs> undermines voluntary exchange of individuals and other aspects of policy that was, was changed. So I think that's where we saw our economic freedoms being infringed upon. Now, that's not to say that wasn't for good reason. Maybe if uh, you know, I'm leaving out of this discussion at this point that, well, yeah, you can, let's have freedom and you go out and 2 million people die or something. Uh, so we're, I'm leaving that aspect out of this, bear in mind. This is just the bare bones of what does it mean to have higher economic freedom versus lower, so. All right, so on the uh, policy side, for some of the results from the, from the survey, just a couple bullet points from the executive summary, 40% of the businesses don't expect to return to pre-crisis levels uh, this year. So there's uh, certainly not a rosy future expected, at least for returning to things this year. This was again back in May, and this is Kansas businesses. 60% of the businesses are concerned most about getting customers back. So they're just wondering if they're even going to have customers. 76% of the businesses were fearful or uncertain that there will be permanent closures of businesses in their industry. So a lot of this looked pretty bleak as we're having a shutdown. Of course, ultimately, we later learned that we fall uh, some 20 to 30% unemployment, depending on where you're at in the country. The survey kind of brought that to our attention. And that policy brief is out there. It wasn't really the main focus of, of the talk that I gave, though, because ultimately where I wanted to bring the discussion was into the type of policies that we could be moving towards with COVID and the number of cases that are out there. So 
as a trained economist, Peter, you can uh, jump in on this if you want. We had this uncertainty and at least what I remember back from my econometric days, and, and you're a little closer to your econometric days, but mathematical models don't perform very well when there's a huge error term or a lot of uncertainty, right? So, and we saw this come out with the COVID early on with Fauci and the others coming out with, well, we could have 2 million deaths. And it's like, well, but I forgot to tell you that the error term is really lousy. So it could end up being just maybe 10 deaths, but it could be 10, it could be 2 million. So basically the mathematical model is almost meaningless. That's right. And another issue with some of the models that have been put out is uh, they don't take into consideration a very important economic contribution, which was the Lucas critique. And what the Lucas critique is kind of a, a, a watered down maybe version of it, a, a simplified version is that you can't ignore the fact that people in the model can take the model into consideration. And so, mm. for example, these shutdown models uh, didn't necessarily take into account that people would adapt their behavior based on, you know, the implementation of various policies. There's, there's no adaption built into the models. And so uh, a proper model needs to take that into consideration. And so not looking at the adapting of people's behavior to the coronavirus could, could lead you to be biased in the direction of thinking there's going to be more cases than otherwise. Some sort of endogeneity problem. That, that, that's taking exactly right. something as given. Justin, what were you thinking about that? I, I think it's important to say, too, because this might not be obvious to some of our listeners if they're watching the news, but uh, those models wildly overestimated the amount of deaths that would occur due to the coronavirus in the time frame up till now. Yes. So it's, a, it's important to state that, you know, we're not just saying like, hey, look, models can be bad. Uh, we are saying, look, these models were bad in the sense that they did not correctly predict the amount of deaths that they forecasted. And so here are the reasons why that might be the case. Right. Yeah. And what I tried to uh, differentiate that, I think people who don't, you know, look at this stuff very often don't think about is the difference between risk and uncertainty. We trade risk all the time. So the probability of us getting into a car accident in the next month because I'm a male and I'm 48 uh, is pretty easily known through empirical evidence. And so the pro that probability now can be traded. I can trade that risk with an insurance company who's willing to pay off the you know, my potential healthcare expenses and the crash cars and, and anything else related to a car crash that I might have. So that's a very tradable good, right? We've created a market for risk in the insurance markets. Whereas when we have uncertainty, true uncertainty, we really have no clue what that probability is. And therefore, those mathematical models are meaningless. Now, that actually makes me okay with shutting down in the face of true uncertainty. I just wish the experts would have came out and said that because if you are truly uncertain, then maybe it is better to shut down until more information is gathered if it's at least plausible that this disease is contagious, that we don't really know if people die quickly or die out or that they can be fixed or uh, treated. You know, all the mess that we faced back in April and or March and April was true uncertainty. And then maybe we should hedge our bet and actually shut things down. But as information became available, 
maybe we should have got things going a little faster and uh, not necessarily, I think a separate issue is whether the essential non-essential distinction uh, was made. Yeah, and then important on that note, especially talking about this uh, question of, you know, maybe we should be conservative and shut down because there's the sheer uncertainty. One thing that we have to take into consideration, if that's the train of thought is before we consider that, we also have to look at what the potential costs are. And I think Russ, you just got it at the end there with the essential versus non-essential, some very important hidden costs that weren't discussed, and so I, which I think should have been. And so this idea of essential and non-essential, I think oversimplifies things quite a bit. I, I don't think it's a meaningful category as far as economics is concerned because of what's called size law. In size law, uh, you know, there's a, a straw man version, which is the field of dreams economics. If you build it, they will come. That's not really what it is. What size law <laughs> says is basically there can be no demand without supply. And so in order to have a demand for something, you have to be supplying something of value, of equal value, so that way you can trade for it. And oftentimes, uh, the fact that we use money kind of disguises this, but this still happens behind the scenes. And so when you shut down, you know, half of the economy, we say, let's say half the economy is non-essential. What you're actually losing out on is all those people who uh, were previously supplying something uh, no longer have anything to supply, but they still want the stuff that they demand. And what that means is even those essential services are going to uh, have to be cut as well because what you've dubbed as non-essential services are also cut because no one has any goods to exchange. And so if you don't have, you know, for example, Walmart, you know, jewelry section, if that's shut down, if you don't have that person, well, then that person's not making money to buy services in the first place. They're not producing anything of value to exchange for services. And so that hurts even the quote unquote essential sectors. And so I think that's a major unseen cost. Okay, so the one thing I got out of what you just said there is that have I been saying says law the wrong the whole time? I, I heard you pronounce it a little differently. I always said it as S A Y says law, but you said size law, size law, like S I Z E. We, 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 we need a Frenchman to consult. I'm not exactly sure. Okay, what all is, right. So. Well, I don't know if that was the way your professor said it, or if if you're re repeating that. But for me, it was always says law. So yeah. boy, we'll have to figure that one out. <laughs> we we just uncovered a whole interesting linguistic mess there i think so i've always been in the says law camp all right you're in the says law number right. i've also so at, least at least i'm in the majority here then <laughs> but i think it's just from having read it not from having heard it so ah good you know. point yeah that's right yeah I, I, some of those pronunciations can can continue along on that so I mean, well i mean go ahead i just add on to what peter was saying too about the the kind of arbitrariness of this distinction between essential and non-essential you know government is the bluntest instrument possible and yeah. so we shouldn't expect the government to be able to make all the fine distinctions that you know we would want it to that we would want to be done if we want to, you know, really make sure that only whatever essential businesses are shut down. We should recognize that the tool we are using ought to inform our choice to use it. And I think that would make us be less likely to lock down once we realize, oh, it's the government that's going to be doing these things. And they're <laughs> obviously going to, you know, have to make these broad classifications, which are going to scoop up a lot of the wrong people in, in wrong categories. Right especially as you get to, you know, higher and higher levels of government, you know, you talk about national government making rules, even state governments making rules. Uh, you know, a, an important point made by F.A. Hayek is the idea of, you know, you've got tacit local knowledge. 
which is that there are people who know things about their lives that you couldn't even quantify if you wanted to, let alone if you had the technical abilities to do so, uh, which we don't have the technical abilities to do so. But even that knowledge, even if we did, like riding a bike, that's not something that you could uh, know. There are things about people's lives you can't know. And so the, the, the idea, like you were saying, Justin, that like this blunt instrument of the federal government or the state government can, you know, get into the minutia of your life and determine those things that which are essential for you. Um, that, that's something that uh, I think, it, obviously, there, there's big errors in it. Uh, there, it. A big mistake is being made when we think that that tool can do that job. Yeah. All right. So it looks like we're getting close to our break as the, as the cliffhanger here. I, I got to tell you, I felt like I actually made a dent with some policymakers uh, at this session uh, from the feedback that I got afterwards. Um, and it, it came down to uh, having them think about using a different type of variable for policymaking, and that was healthcare capacity. And we'll pick it up from there after we return. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time reoccurring donation. Please visit 123povertysucks.org. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. The Gordy Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith, and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ today. All right. So the uh, material that I presented to the Senate showed healthcare capacity. And I pulled up the Kansas Department of Health's exact data and she, the uh, state epidemiologist happened to present just before me. And when she was presenting to the committee, she it's kind of similar. I'm not trying to pick fights or anything, but very similar to what we see in the media. I talked about the whole process of going from here's the data in March, here's the data in April, using cumulative totals as a descriptor. So it's like, oh, we had 9,000, you know, 5,000 cases here in April, and I'm, I'm kind of going off the top of my head, you know, 9,000 cases. And then, of course, we got 14,000 cases, and it just kind of built this doom and gloom look, which would, to me was um, not spot on with the way it even should be thought of in terms of uh, taking corrective action. And so also on their website, on the Kansas website, and I think this is available nationally, was the number of ICU beds available. In the state of Kansas, there was 47% availability of ICU beds. And there was 84% availability of ventilators. And so what I posed to the group of policymakers was to head towards objective benchmarks for healthcare capacity. There might be other variables that healthcare professionals and other experts might be able to come up with, but let's take it out of the governor's office on some sort of discretion of, oh, well, I think 14,000 cases, that's getting pretty bad. I think we had her shut down. That really doesn't have much meat on the bones. And so if we instead think that everybody's going to get sick at some point, and that may or may not be true, but a large fraction of people are going to get sick. The point is, can we, can we take care of those who get sick uh, in an appropriate way where our healthcare professionals are not working overtime, they're putting in their normal shift, there's excess uh, beds available to treat people, so even as the cases have gone up, the data that was interesting was 
mortality rates have gone, continued to go down. So less people are dying and hospitalization rates are on the downward trend slightly. So if we keep our eye on something objective like that, it totally changes the nature of the game if you're a business or if you're an individual. Instead of wondering if the governor's gonna feel like there's too much cases or you can just pull up the number of beds available. It's like, and the policy then would be, if ICU beds gets to being only 3% available or 5% available or 10% available, I don't know what that X percent is. That would be something for healthcare professionals and other people to look at but let's just use 5% for the sake of argument. We're getting to this critical point. Cases are going up. We only have 5% available. We are shutting down. Like that's the shutdown point, right? And so now we have something very objective for uh, businesses and individuals alike to use and to watch and monitor. And policy will be shaped by that non-discretionary variable rather than something that's at the discretion of our, of our experts. So Justin? The one thing, I have a couple things to say about that. I mean, cumulative cases is objective too in that it's a testable number. But what, what I take you to be focusing on is that like, look, we have, there's a bunch of different things that we, numbers we could look at. Let's look at the number that is actually, you know, more important here. You know, cumulative number of cases is obviously going to go up and it's obviously going to go up the more testing we do too. Yeah. Um, and we know that a lot of those people who are testing positive are, you know, actually asymptomatic. But I really like focusing on, you know, the mortality rate and that graph that you included shows that the mortality rate is going down. And I, I'm a huge fan of this idea of focusing on hospital capacity and healthcare capacity. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think, gosh, why didn't our leaders uh, focus on hospital capacity, you know, months ago? And right. I say that facetiously because they did, right? <laughs> That's how they sold this lockdown. Yeah. They said, we need to flatten the curve. Yeah. Then, you know, if you're saying we should focus on hospital capacity, you're being consistent with what these people told us we needed to focus on three months ago. So, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that the narrative has changed um, and that we are no longer talking about hospital capacity because that, was the thing that we were worried about in the beginning, and rightfully so. And as you point out, this this would be an objective measure that you know would make sense to the public. Yeah, and would, yeah. And would take it out of the hands of you know people who are just afraid because of a number that doesn't really indicate risk, like aggregate number of cases. Yeah, that good good point. Yeah, because the number of cases is objective, and. I think the healthcare capacity issue does a little bit more of like a cost benefit element to it. Yeah, I think so too. It's, it's a little unclear, especially with cases, not knowing exactly, not having all the best data to find out, you know, the asymptomatic cases that Justin mentioned, or even what direction are we biased towards? You know, uh, how many cases are we overcounting or undercounting because we have false positives? We, we don't really have any of that information. And so it's hard to see the associated costs with just a case. Like, uh, how much does a case of coronavirus cost? It, it's, it's not very obvious. Uh, but what maybe is more obvious is the cost of overbooking a hospital or something like that. And that's why, you know, economics is focusing on the marginal cost and the marginal benefit. It's much, much clearer to make the case about hospital capacity with costs and benefits than it is the number of cases. That just isn't obvious at all. Yeah, so the next thing I kind of got into with the committee was something 
Peter was already bringing up with the knowledge problem. So uh, there's a quote here from one of the uh, respondents in the survey. I'm a sole proprietor. I have no employees to instruct or educate, no need for any other measures for safety other than the excessive cleaning and sanitizing I'm already doing. Hot spots and people who are at high risk need to be monitored and regulated somewhat. Everyone else needs to get back to life. Again, common sense. So uh, to me, that spoke to the knowledge problem that Peter was bringing up that no central planner could understand the trade-offs and um, opportunities that each individual. And so this idea of allowing individuals to make their own decisions um, is an important one. Now, the, the fear with that, though, is when we have asymmetric information. So in an efficient market, the buyer and the seller come into negotiations knowing all the relevant factors of that. And so as it relates to COVID, it would be the risks that we're taking on. And so I think one of the things I recommended to the policymakers was the government providing laws that might require information sharing. So food labels is kind of the classic example of if we think there's a benefit to society of, you know, how many calories are in this soda and how much sugar. And so we require a food label. There might be libertarians, as I'm looking at Justin Smirk a little bit, they, I don't even think food labels <laughs> should be out there. But I'm, I'm taking a little bit more of a pragmatic approach that it's fairly inexpensive for a business to put on the information on the food label and uh, in its own standardized form. As we know, we buy stuff all the time. It's got packaging and wrappers. And so to add that information to the product helps create efficiency there. And so with COVID, if we have people knowledgeable about the risks that they're taking on of going into that mom and pop place on Main Street, why? Because Maybe the government has forced mom and pop to put up either a, a website or, or, or something on their site or a, a physical sign or something that shows the city's uh, COVID rate or something, the, the, the infection rate that's going on in your town or something like that. And so every business that's operating, obviously we can get a lot more high tech with this and possibly the city itself could have a website. And so just like we go in for a Yelp review or whatever on how good the pizza is on at Pizza Time or Pizza Village, um, the consumer now is buying a bundled good of, of COVID risk along with that pizza. And so they just have to make decisions themselves. They're free to choose what place they want to go to as long as the information is relatively equal on each side, then let the consumer choose. I think you got a good point. I got at a good point there, Russ, when you were talking about how competitive markets sort of deal with um you know, in, in the face of symmetric information, deal with this knowledge problem, I would take it even a step further. And I would say that the way that we know the knowledge problem is solved, or at least the way it's been demonstrated to be solved, is by having a private property that involves profit and loss. And so when you go to a grocery store, uh, if they have postings that you think are helpful and beneficial and truthful and honest, uh, then you're going to be more likely to shop there. Like you were just saying, you kind of bundle that coronavirus risk in there. And then if you go to one where, you know, there's no masks allowed or no masks allowed or maybe even, you know, no masks required, it could be either one. There's no postings. People are coughing all over everything. Uh, if you're a cautious person or a person at high risk, you're probably not going to go back. And so what that demonstrates is that on private property, at least, people internalize externalities. That is, they make decisions given the knowledge they have. This is how it solves the knowledge problem about whether or not they want to go back. And so the externality, people often talk about coronavirus as an externality. Well, on private property, it really isn't one. 
uh, because you can choose to go to Walmart, you can choose to go to someone's house, and you take into account those costs when you do that. Really, the only problem where you run into any issue is uh, public property. Well, and I have to put a little plug in for Menards here. Um, I, I said this to the state Senate yesterday, too, because uh, one of the senators in the question and answer brought up Menards requiring masks. And so I went up to Menards, and Menards is a, uh, a big uh, donor and sponsor of the Gordon Institute, uh, helps fund uh, Professor Clark's uh, position, among other things, uh, with the student activities. And uh, I couldn't help but just say, God bless America, when I went into Menards without a mask to pick up some materials that I had purchased online, and a large security guard said, sorry, you have to have a mask to come in here. We're, we've got them for sale at the desk for a dollar, or if you've got something out in your car. And I like, you know, kind of the first thing was, uh, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe I don't agree with it or whatever, but if I wanted to, I could go across the street to Home Depot where they maybe weren't requiring masks. And that's the free market in action is why I say God bless America that uh, each business is free to choose their level of uh, requirements that they might have for you to be a patron there. And so I went out to my car, found an old t-shirt, uh, strapped that around my head because I couldn't find my mask. I'm not an I'm, I'm not an anti-masker listeners. Uh, I've been fine with with the whole mask idea, but I just thought it was great how Menards chose to do that, and that was a free market response, not coming from the the governor's office to to save the day uh, on saving society. So just buy a mask for a dollar, man. <laughs> uh, no way, kid. <laughs> You have to pick on my budgeting here, don't you? I get it. All right. So, yeah, that's how I solved uh, that particular problem. So then the next direction I took the, the talk was uh, getting into property rights. Um, and uh, I think we need a little more caveat emptor. Um, anybody remember those Latin words? Buyer beware. Buyer beware. Yep, Justin got it. So buyer beware. Um, you know, we, that's almost a forgotten concept in the United States because we pretty much have the government to lean on and take care of us. And, and so uh, if something happens to me, then, then uh, I can be well taken care of. The government continues to, to watch out for me like a good mom or dad uh, would do for their kid. And so I think Kansas is a place where we could be a, a possibly a national leader in a little more caveat emptor. And so Again, if, uh, if the leadership at the governor's office comes out and says, well, we're Kansas and um, we're, our businesses are going to stay open and they're going to have to disclose uh, information about maybe COVID rates in your county or city, but you all need to choose whether you want to, to go to that place or not. And each one of them can choose whether to require a mask or not. And, and that's just the way the world works. So buyer beware, you, you have the right to do that, but you also might have to pay the consequences that the state's not gonna have a law that forces a requirement. And so um, I think that resonated with the group a little bit too. Like we, we could be different. That, that type of policy might not work in New York or California or other places, but I think in the, in the good old heartland of Kansas, that, that's a good possibility. And so then I kind of concluded the talk by thinking about the idea of federalism. So 
our founders had this notion that we don't want a real strong federal government. The government should be limited with its powers. So at the Congress level and Trump level, they don't have a lot of power. And then there's more power given to the states and even more power given to the local counties and cities at that government level. And so the uh, what I recommended was when we get to shut down decisions or high cost decisions, it, those would be better residing at the city county level where you can imagine a city uh, is considering a shutdown. Maybe there's a rash of cases, but now local people at local business, mom and pop, maybe Walmart managers, whatever, they can vote and put pressure on their local government officials to say, yes, we want to stay open. Don't you dare shut us down or yes, things are getting real bad here because we know our own community a lot better than what uh, the governor's office knows it or let alone Trump knows it way back in Washington, DC. And the decisions that may belong more at the state level or possibly the country level would be more lower cost regulations. So I brought up mask requirements because as aggravating as they are, and I know there's a lot of people out there that'll say, well, I, I I'm not gonna wear a mask or you're violating my rights, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's all true. I, I don't like the, the aggravation of the mask. However, from a policy standpoint, it's a fairly low cost measure. And so even if you don't believe masks do much, they are, uh, you know, it seems plausible that they're catching your spit as you're talking or there's less, uh, things being transmitted on shopping carts or whatever. And so from, from my standpoint, in terms of cost benefit, even if it's a little uncertain about the benefit side, if there's seems like a little bit of benefit, the fact that the cost is so low, it might start to pass the cost benefit analysis for me. And so I'm a little more okay with low cost requirements and regulations coming from the top down in a more centralized place. Uh, but otherwise, the high cost shutdowns and maybe some other regulations that would be more expensive belong more at the county and city level. And so that's the general notion of federalism putting into play with COVID-related policies. And then so finally, my concluding thoughts to the committee were, you know, individual economic freedom, something Kansas can be proud of if we are at uh, not near health healthcare capacity then we should just let people be free uh, as long as the information set is out there. So keep the decisions local, increase information sharing. That might be a place that the government can help on in getting people the knowledge that they need to, to make the choice of whether they wanna patronize a business or not. And then finally target funds to the most vulnerable populations. I think I said this on a previous podcast that I thought it was ridiculous, the policy of give every American some money to help offset COVID. I just, as an economist, think, wow, that's so much money. Imagine what we could do for vulnerable populations that are kept in a nursing home or something. We could have had personal attendance. Everyone could have gotten a 40-inch flat screen with free Netflix and Hulu subscriptions. You can start laying it on real thick that we could have really helped ease some of the pain that these vulnerable populations might have been facing during that time. Uh, compared to giving a guy like me 1200 bucks and, and then figuring out where that's going to be paid for three to five to 10 years from now. So that's where I wrapped up with the committee. Um, so final thoughts from, from you guys on this? Well, uh, with regard to the paying people money, I'm not necessarily opposed to just a 
a blanket distribution of funds to everybody. But I also think that, look, if we're going to talk about how much money uh, and what we could have done uh, for vulnerable populations, then we should look not just at the, you know, the, the cash assistance that went out to everybody, because that is by percentage of the number of dollars in the aid package. That's a tiny proportion of it. You know, if you look at the amount of money um, that was actually, you know, created or borrowed or however you want to do it uh, per capita compared to the amount of money that we actually see, um, that's a crazy number too. Yeah. 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 There's definitely trade-offs there. I mean, I, I know uh, the argument, which is a decent one of getting money into people's hands. I still felt it was very Keynesian though, that we can get this economy going if we just throw some money out there and get people spending. And here's, here's some money since you're low on money. And it doesn't really matter who I give it to. I just have to get it in the system, get those juices flowing, get the machine running uh, is, is uh, not a good policy, but it was expeditious. It was able to get the money out there if that's your uh, belief. Uh, but so those are the trade-offs. Yeah. And, and, and the government from back to the knowledge problem, maybe doesn't know that I didn't have somebody suffering with COVID and that my 1200 was really needed, right? So I was just saying in my particular circumstances, I was uh, in pretty good shape, but the government didn't know that. It's possible I could have needed it. So those are some of the trade-offs. I know it's not easy, but I'm not in that chair. I just get to be economist Monday morning quarterback in some cases, so. so did you return the money? <laughs> no, that's the thing. Now, that's an important concept and lesson there, too, um, that you can be against policy and still go with it, um, because I do know there's going to be some future tax liability. So I banked mine, um, and we'll be cutting that check back to the government to offset some of the future tax liability that I will face. So, all right. Any other last comments here? Looks like we got that one in the books. So this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. Thank you all for listening. And if you feel so inclined, uh, we have lots of student programs and other things that we fund. And so we have a little donate button at gortneyinstitute.org and you can go there. Also just some non-monetary support through a five-star rating on your app helps other people find our podcasts. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Thanks.